I'm reading from John chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. This is God's holy word, full of grace and truth. Just then, Jesus' disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we have believed, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. Thank you so much for reading. You need to look at the bigger picture. If a parent says that, if a teacher says that, if a coach says that, If a boss says that, they're telling us that there's some aspect of our perspective that's limited. That we're seeing something partially, but there's a bigger picture we're not seeing. Maybe it's scope and maybe it's scale, or maybe it's just time. Maybe we're looking at something with like a a one-week window. And someone says, you need a bigger picture. You need to think about the next decade, not just the next week. When Jesus teaches us in John 4, he teaches us about a bigger picture. It's one that the disciples were missing. And if we listen to what Jesus says, I, I, I think we'll learn and I think we'll have him call our attention to a bigger picture that maybe even potentially we're missing as well. What, I, what I'd like for us to do is hear the words of Jesus and have that push us to think bigger. And I'd like to do that in a couple ways. I'd like to spend our time in God's Word this morning answering a couple questions. One of those questions is what's really important to Jesus? What's really important to Jesus? And then in a moment, I want to follow that with who really gets what Jesus is saying? But the first question What's really important 
to Jesus. And, and to find that, you're, we're actually going to look in the kind of the middle verses of what Angela read. But before we get there, I think we need to set the stage because we've been reading in John 4 the last couple weeks. And so really today's look at God's word is an extension of what we saw last week. And last week we saw a conversation that Jesus had, and it really is an, an amazing conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman. And even the fact that the conversation happened, we talked about this last week, was somewhat of a surprise. It was a surprise because generally men did not talk to unrelated women in public. And generally Jews did, didn't talk to Samaritans. And so here we have Jesus breaking some of those barriers, some of those social norms, by sitting down to a well around noontime and asking the Samaritan woman, could you give me something to drink? When Jesus asked that question, it initiated a conversation, and quickly this woman went from being a stranger to Jesus to something that would be far, far greater than a stranger. Her life would be changed by Jesus requesting a drink from her. Jesus would begin to talk to her about living water, would actually offer her living water. And it's, it's a symbol for the deep satisfaction that we all want to get out of life. And Jesus says, I can give that to you. And they go back and forth in their discussion. But in the, in the course of conversation, she actually believes. Somewhere along that conversation, she believes that Jesus is the Messiah. That he's the one that everybody's been waiting for. And her faith causes her to do something that John takes note of. It says in verse 28 that she, she's at the well, she's come to the well for water, and yet she leaves her water pot at the well. And I think it's just in her joy and in her excitement as she's going back to town to tell people about this encounter with someone that has changed her life. She leaves the water pot. And and yet we're told, even in the verses that Angela read, the, the beginning verses, something else is going on. So get in your mind mentally, this Samaritan woman is going back to her, her town, and coming from that town are the disciples, the first followers of Jesus. And they're coming back from town after Jesus had sent them to town to pick up food. So they're coming back from town, and they're surprised at first that Jesus had been talking with a Samaritan woman, but the text says nobody wanted to ask him that question. But then when they come back, I mean, they've, they've been on a mission. Jesus told them to go to the town, get food. So they come back and they say, rabbi or teacher, eat. And Jesus says, eat. I have food that you don't know anything about. And it is so prone. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the accounts of Jesus and his followers. And often they don't get exactly what he's saying. Sometimes they think something is, is meant to be taken uh, literally when he's saying it spiritually. And so they're a little put off by Jesus saying, I've got food that you don't even know about. Their main question is, who brought him food? Where did Jesus get food? And then Jesus says, what really is important to him. And we hear it in verse 34. Do you want to know what's important to Jesus? He says, my food 
is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Interesting the way the word food is being used there. It's as if Jesus is saying, you want to know what fuels me? You want to know what energizes me? You know, food is something that you need daily. You know what, what wakes me up in the morning? You know what keeps me going in life? My food is to do the will of him who sent me, to accomplish his work. And the, the will and the work of God, I think Jesus is telling those disciples, you want to know what's really important to me? It's conversations like the one I just had. It's conversations like the one I just had with a woman that was looking for satisfaction. My father's will and my father's work, that's what matters to me. And so when my father says he would leave the 99 to go after the one who is lost and needs rescue, that's what's important to me. When my father loves this world in such a way that he sent me his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in me wouldn't perish, but would have deep and lasting life, that's what matters to me. When my father sent me on a rescue mission to seek and to save those who are lost, that's what's really important to me. When, when I know that my father wants worshipers from every every ethnicity, every race, every language, every, every status that you can imagine. That is what matters to me. That is what is important to me. You want to know what matters to me? The conversations like I just had. Jesus says, that's my fuel. That's my food. And I think what he points out in the life of the disciples is that is not nearly as urgent to them as it should be. How do I know he is teaching and telling them and us that? Because Jesus quotes this, this saying or this proverb. This proverb in verse 35, he says, you, you have this saying, like four months till harvest. In other words, it's almost as if like our, our saying kind of equivalent would be Rome wasn't built in a day. So there's, there's plenty of time. I mean, we, we've got, We've got time on this uh, before, before we're, we're really going to do spiritual work. These things take time. And Jesus says, you don't sense the urgency. Don't say four months until harvest. Don't say, don't let like your patience be an excuse for being passive. There's no room to be passive about what I am doing here. To the disciples, I wonder if as he spoke, something began to process for them. I wonder if Jesus is calling out something like, do you recognize you just went to a town? You went to a town of Samaritans. Did you, did you see the people there? Did you pass people coming into town and going out of town? Did you see the men and women? Did you, did you automatically characterize, ah, like we're just going to get in here and buy food and get out? That's all, that's all really, I don't know that Jesus is going to do much work here. So we're just going to get our food, get our stuff, and then go back to Jesus. And Jesus says, did you not, do you not see? You need to lift up your eyes. You need to see a bigger picture. That town that you went into, there are people in there that need good news. 
There are people in there that need that, that are searching. They might be seeking something. And, and I, I have to think Jesus could ask us the same question. Do you not see, do you not see the, the person in your friend group that is deeply searching and desperately wanting something? And do, do you not see that there are people where like life isn't coming together and maybe they live on your hall or maybe you're in a class with them or maybe they live in your development Maybe you are in an in a office or a cubicle just a couple down from, do you see them? Or do you just, like, you think you're just living your life and you're kind of punching the clock, trying to get a degree done, trying to get a decent paycheck? Are, are you not paying attention? Do you not sense the urgency? Who in your world needs to know there's a rescuer? Do, do you see that? He goes on to say, like, this, this season is a season of sowing and reaping. He says, there, verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages. It's already happening. Gathering fruit for eternal life. There's a harvest of deep and lasting life. The sower and the reaper can rejoice together, like those who are sharing good news and those who are believing. All of this is happening at the same time. It's not like maybe that'll happen out in the distance. No, what about right now? What about the good work that God is doing right now? What about the lives he's changing now? The people that need hope now. The people that need purpose now. The people that need healing now. Do you see those? Or are you just playing it passive? And then he says in verse 38, I, disciples, I've sent you to reap. And you're reaping that for which you didn't even labor. Others have gone before you. Others have labored. And you're just entering into that labor now. It's interesting, the picture. It's, it's like this. when Disciples, when you go into a town, you're not the first to have been there. It, it's almost a, an analogy that came to my mind was on, I, I don't remember exactly which afternoon it was this week, but I was driving home from work and I saw like these lines on the road. And it gave an indication like the road had been pre-treated, right? So that when the precipitation came, the roads would at least be a little bit easier to clear off so that, so that people could drive on them. And there's a pre-treatment of a different kind and of a spiritual kind. Where I, I wonder if the others in verse 38... Uh, surely it could talk about the prophets, it could talk about John the Baptist, maybe other witnesses, but I do wonder if the others that are talked about in verse 38 are like the Father, the Sovereign Father has gone before you into, the, into towns like these. And, and Jesus Christ as the Son is, has already spoken, he's already powerful in the, in the Holy Spirit. Don't we know that he's already searching for people to draw to the glory of Jesus Christ and the worship of our Father? They've gone before. They're preparing the way. When you go out to reap, you're not the first in the field. I already have a harvest planned. You just go out and labor. This is what's most important to Jesus. Do, do we get that? As a matter of fact, that kind of leads us to the next question, and that is who will really get what Jesus is saying, what he's doing? Who really does get it? Who really does get what's important to Jesus? Who really does get what he's saying and what he's doing? 
Is it the disciples? Well, apparently not, because he gives them kind of a remedial course of what he's doing. Would it be even people like Nicodemus in John 3, just one chapter before, who's a religious leader and knows theology pretty well? Actually, Nicodemus doesn't get it. You know who, who really gets it in John 3 and in John 4? You know the one person that really gets what Jesus is doing is a Samaritan woman. It's the woman at the well. She's the one who gets it. She's the one who gets the work that the Father wants to do, can do, is doing, will do. She's the one who gets the urgency that any work for God ought to have. She's the one who understands that eternal life is what what is at stake, deep and lasting life. She's the... She's the one who responds exactly like she gets it. How does she respond? How do we know she's the one who gets it? We know by what she did. And what she did in verse 28 is go right back to the town where she came from. And she intentionally found people and invited them to come with her to meet Jesus. That's how we know she got what Jesus was saying and doing. And we also know by the result, when she gave that invitation, a group of people from that town come back with her to meet Jesus. How does that happen? I mean, I've read this story a lot. And as I read the story, a question that kept coming up to me was like, why would the town want to go out and listen to her and follow her? What was compelling about her? Was it that she had this airtight, logical presentation of Christianity where she connected every dot, explained every, every difficulty? Did, did she go back to the town and say, I have solved the problem of evil and human suffering. I have all answers now. Come and listen to me. Does, does she go back to the town and and say, I can defend all questions that might be asked about Christianity and about Jesus Christ. That's not what she does. It's so much simpler than that. As a matter of fact, verse 39 gives it one word, and that word is testimony. This is what, this is what she does. This is from the text. This is all she does. And she says, here's what happened. She gives her... I mean, it's a subjective experience that has happened to her. She says, come see a man that told me everything I had ever done. He told me what I had done. And frankly, what he told her wasn't immediately pleasant for her to hear when, when she first heard it. Because what he told her about her life was, you've been married five times and the person you're living with now is not your husband. That, that's like a spotlight being, being shined on, on some of the most difficult parts of her life. Maybe some of the most vulnerable things in her life. Maybe the thing that she would least want any stranger to ever know. Jesus calls out, and that's exactly what she goes back to the town and says, he told me everything I had ever done. Of course, the town would have known that. And Jesus told her that. But in that same moment, what she knew is when Jesus told me everything I had ever done, 
right before that, knowing what I had already done, he offered me living water. So he knew me, and he still loved me. So I'm not just, I'm not just known and exposed. I'm accepted, and I'm loved. I'm not rejected and despised. As a matter of fact, this man that I met back at the well, he told me that God was calling worshipers and that I would be a part of that group of people that would worship him. He's the kind of savior that like, you don't have to pretend like you got your act together when you really don't. He's the, the kind of savior that you don't earn his favor by all sorts of promises of oh, this time I really mean it or I'll, I'll try to stop or I'll quit or I'm really, I'm really sorry this time. I really, I'll never do it. That's not the kind of savior I met at the well. I met someone who knew me and loved me and this was such good news that she could not help but share. She goes back to town and what's not recorded is like she only talked to this group of people because she was worried that she might offend some by her religious talk. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that she was fearful. She went back to the town really, really nervous about the person that would ask her questions about theology that she might not be able to answer because they're really hard. Or that she went back to the town and she was worried that someone might point a finger at it and say, who are you to tell us about God's stuff? You're a hypocrite? She wasn't worried about kind of the endless questions of who am I and what do I know? Kind of that cul-de-sac that you never get out of. I mean, you'll never, you'll never feel like super qualified. If you know the gospel well, you'll never feel like, oh, I'm just, I've arrived and now I can tell everybody about Jesus. You'll never feel that if you truly know the gospel. How different her response of just going to the town and saying, come, come meet a man. How different is our response of fear how different is our response of pride or maybe just indifference? We just don't care. How different it is. It's sometimes hard for us to share our faith. But we, we even have a fuller picture than she did. We know he went to the cross. We know he did that in love. We know that he said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. We know he rose from the dead. Victory over sin, victory over death. We know that we can be united with Jesus Christ. We know that nothing can separate us from his love. We have something simple. So we're, we're not even entering into this world like sharing our faith in a combative way. We just have a simple testimony. He knows me and he loves me. And you can always give an invitation for someone to meet Jesus. You can always talk about who you found him to be. You can always talk about what it means to you. And, and frankly, it's natural for us to share things that matter to us. If there's something we like or something that gets our attention, it's very natural for us to look at someone else that matters to us and tell them about it. I mean, probably this week didn't go by without us sharing some sort of video, some sort of news story, some sort of picture. Probably we shared some sort of recommendation on a, a, a food or, or a, a brand or a place where we shop or some place someone ought to go. We, we do this all the time. 
we get an encouraging email and we say, hey, you ought to read this. This really made my day. We share what matters to us. We share what's good news. What we don't share, we don't share our junk mail. I'm never tempted to share that with my close friends. I'm never tempted to like save up all the advertisements I get that, to change my cable provider. Or my lawn must be like the significant wreck because the lawn doctor and everybody else is wanting me like to use them. And, and I, I never think about like, oh, this is great about, about the trash service that could save me a few dollars. I never save that for the people that matter to me. I never share that with them because I think, ah, they probably don't care anyway. Maybe it's helpful for some, but not all. But when it comes to good news, you don't have to force me to share it. I want us to think about this. Why does the town come to meet Jesus? Something she said, some indication she gave, must have hit them exactly where they're living. I don't know any of the residents of that town of Samaria, but what I do know is because they're human, they're searching. Because I, I know people, I know there's some things in their life that were not working for them. They needed better answers than the answers they had. Some amount of religion and spirituality, it just wasn't cutting it. They come out because they know they're made for more. They come out to this person named Jesus because They know they need a change. And the fact is, here we are 2,000 years later, and people are still searching, and people still need Jesus. And and the facts are that God is still powerful. And Jesus is still loving, and he is still interested in people and in entire cities. And our experience of being known and loved is what can fuel us to a harvest of people that need to know there is a God who loves, and he sent his son Jesus Christ in love. To rescue. What happens in this town? It says in verse 39, it's amazing. Many in that town believe because of her testimony. Many. Because of her testimony. Actually, the thing that we would say, like, yeah, she has a kind of a sketchy past. And that's actually what drives people to believe. The one thing that you might think would disqualify her or disqualify you might be the one thing that God uses to bring people to faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ. The reality is she knows what the town needs. She knows that God has been seeking worshipers. And it isn't a leap that there would be those that God is seeking in her town she goes back, not just with the subjective, like, you know, I found something that works for me, but whatever works for you, that's just fine. She doesn't do that, does she? She actually says, I think we found the Christ. At the end of the day, the people in the town, they say, he's not just like the savior of this woman. He's not just the savior of Samaria. He's not just the savior of the Jews or of Palestine or of the Middle East. We've met the savior of the world. He can change everything. 
And many more in the town believe because this woman brought a town to Jesus. And Jesus stays with them two days and many more believe and know for themselves he's the Christ. What could happen? I read this about Samaria and then I think what could happen in Newark? What could happen in Wilmington? What could happen in Bear? What could happen in Newcastle County? What could happen in the mid-Atlantic? What could happen? I'm so grateful, and and Champ prayed for several of the churches in our area. There there are many others that we could pray for who are preaching just a simple message of grace and forgiveness and, and hope through Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. But I actually think God has more work to do than just in gatherings like this on Sunday. Actually, what I wonder is if the most dynamic evangelists and witnesses for the gospel will not happen at Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, although this is a powerful witness. I wonder if it'll be as we leave, as we go back to our cities, as we go back to our places of work, our, our friend groups, and we go out with a message that is too good not to share. We have a simple, transparent invitation, not that we have all the answers, but we say, you've got to meet someone who's changed my life. You've got to meet him. You've got to meet Jesus Christ. If we're not doing that, my guess is we've forgotten how good, how good the news is that we have been known and loved by God himself. We've forgotten So for that, you know what we would pray? Lord, restore the joy of my salvation. Restore, bring back the joy of my salvation so that I'm not motivated by guilt. Yeah, I ought to be doing that more. But I'm motivated by the grace of God and his good plan for this area to gather worshipers. I'm going to ask the deacons to get ready to service the Lord's Supper because I thought, what what a great reminder to bring back the joy of our salvation that we come to the Lord's table and we remember his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. What a a great way to restore our joy in knowing we've been accepted. We're not distant. We're not like outsiders. We've been brought to the table. So I, I want to invite those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, who've identified with him as their Lord. You come to the table. You take the bread and the juice, and in a moment we'll take that together. We'll remember Christ's body. Christ's blood shed for us. And if your joy has begun to decrease, this is the time where you say, Lord, forgive me and restore the joy. Bring it back, Lord. Restore the joy of my salvation.